Ever wondered what monetary policy is? Who's in charge of the national debt? Or why BRIC countries should concern you? Well, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome to It's the Economy, a new podcast mini-series for Intelligence Squared Business. I'm Nicola Walton, and I'm not an economist, but I do think it's important that economics is accessible. The economy impacts every aspect of our lives, from how we work to where we live. But how much do we really understand about how big economic concepts and decisions affect us? In this podcast, I'll be breaking down complex economic ideas. So in the time it takes to have a cup of coffee, you'll understand what they mean and why they matter to us. In each episode, I'll be joined by an economics expert to talk us through it all. This week, we're looking at fiscal and monetary policy, and my guest is Andy Haldane, Chief Economist at the Bank of England. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Well, thank you, Nicola, for that warm introduction. Delighted to be here. Well, let's start with definitions. What is monetary policy? In a nutshell, it's about setting borrowing costs uh, in the economy, the amount we pay if we borrow from banks or indeed if we borrow from financial markets, in a way that supports growth in the economy, rises in GDP over time, rises in living standards over time, and in ways which keep the cost of living, the inflation rate, low and stable rates. So in essence, it's about borrowing costs to keep the economy strong and stable. And how does that differ from fiscal policy? Yeah, well, fiscal policy, which tends to be in the hands uh, not of, of central banks like the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank. Fiscal policy, by contrast, that sits uh, in the hands of governments around the world. And that's not so much about influencing uh, borrowing costs for households and for companies as much as spending decisions, how much to spend on things like uh, schools and hospitals uh, and roads. And the flip side of that, which is how we finance those schools and hospitals and roads, which is to say taxation. So Andy, with central banks in the case of the UK, the Bank of England, that's critical for monetary policy. And on the other hand, it's government's tax and spend policies that determine fiscal policy. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I mean, they have similar sorts of objectives. So in both cases, both with monetary policy and with fiscal policy, I mean, they both have a common objective of trying to keep the economy strong. So when we're hit by uh, the pandemic, what we found was both uh, central banks around the world, including the Bank of England, loosening monetary policy, that is to say, lowering borrowing costs to try and support the economy, at the same time as governments around the world, that is to say, fiscal policy, were increasing their spending and reducing their taxes in ways which also supported growth and spending and jobs. Each week, we look at a historic example of this episode's theme, in this case, monetary and fiscal policy. They're constant factors in modern capitalist economies. But one of the most stark examples of fiscal policy was what happened in 1930s America. My producer, Lovejeet Dhaliwal, has been looking at what happened then and what it can teach us about these economic forces. Fiscal policy is all about tax and spend by the government. In 1930s America, President Franklin D. Roosevelt brought in the New Deal. These were a series of programmes to provide support for the unemployed, for farmers, youth and the elderly. They were the Public Works Project, a National Labour Relations Act to protect workers' organising, 
A Fair Labour Standards Act, which set the maximum hours and the minimum wages for most workers, and a relief program, which made the federal government the largest employer in the nation, the Works Progress Administration, or WPA. Roosevelt's policy of expenditure was his government's way of preventing a repeat of the Great Depression. He wanted to ensure that the economy could be coaxed back to recovery. It was an investment in people, in legislation, in infrastructure projects, all in order to aid the economy. In two years, the Public Works Administration alone, which organised the building of airports, hospitals, schools, and roads, spent 3.3 billion dollars. Despite the enormous cost, critics argue that it wasn't this massive expenditure that helped the American economy. It was the advent of World War II and the need for a huge workforce in its factories. So, Andy, the U.S. government spent 3.3 billion dollars building airports, hospitals, roads, schools, etc.—a huge amount of money. But how successful was this amount of spending in America? It played a, a fundamental role, Nicola, in lifting the U.S. out of the Great Depression at the time, which, in in layman's speak, was really about boosting jobs, protecting jobs. Supporting growth in businesses, therefore supporting、uh, incomes and activity right across the U.S. And actually, there's a very close analog just at the moment, where we have under President Joe Biden similarly、uh, enormous program of spending policies, spending programs. To support growth in the U.S. economy and jobs in the U.S. economy, not just in the short term, but over the medium term as well. And now the numbers we're talking about, Nicola, aren't three billion. You can move the decimal point another three places. We're talking trillions of dollars. So we've touched on the role of government there, but when it comes to monetary policy, though. Central banks seem very important. Have central banks, for example, the Bank of England, always been the main player when it comes to monetary policy? Well, it's 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 waxed and waned actually over over time. I mean, truth be told, Nicola, although the Bank of England, my home institution, is what three hundred and twenty-seven years old now, something you know recognisably like monetary policy, like the setting of interest rates to support the economy. To a large extent, that was a 20th century phenomenon, and indeed, a, an important staging post towards central banks being seen as the the primary operational means of delivering monetary policy was the move towards central banks becoming operationally independent of governments. So, right up until 1997. Here in the UK, the Bank of England wasn't responsible for monetary policy. That sat still in the hands of politicians. When I joined the bank, Nicola, way back in 1989, perished. Imagine that. Imagine how long ago that was. the The best single predictor of interest rate movements in the UK wasn't what was happening to GDP. wasn't what was happening to inflation. It was whether Mrs. Thatcher, the then Prime Minister, had a bad by-election result or not, and when she did, we tended to lower interest rates. That's to say, monetary policy wasn't being set by the Bank of England and wasn't being set 
with a view largely to the fortunes of the economy. That changed after 97. At that point, the incoming uh, Labour government granted to the Bank of England operational independence, which was to say it was for the bank's monetary policy committee, on which I sit, to opine on interest rates. Well, 10 years ago, Andy, headlines were dominated by the mysterious term QE or quantitative easing. What is it and why is it so important? Yeah, and there's still a bit of mystery surrounds that even 10 years on. It really, in a nutshell, is back to trying to keep borrowing costs in the economy as low as possible to support the economy. Now, the the way we do that is by controlling the short-term cost of borrowing. And the thought, you know, early on into the global financial crisis is, wouldn't it be a good thing also to exercise some influence to cap the rise in the longer-term borrowing costs that face households if they've got a long-term mortgage or companies if they borrow in capital markets for long periods? And if we are to do that, how to do it? Well, the answer was to to purchase as a central bank, to buy some of those long-term assets. Because if you buy those assets and support the prices of those assets, that puts a lid on longer-term borrowing costs for governments, for companies, and for households. And in essence, that is what QE was about. You've mentioned borrowing, Andy, but um, how does QE... Uh, relate to national debt, another term that's often bandied around? I mentioned that that QE operationally, the way it happens is that the Bank of England or other central banks purchase uh, assets. That is the mechanism by which we keep borrowing costs low and stable. And the lion's share of the assets that we purchase, that we at the Bank of England have purchased, and which many of the central banks around the world have purchased, have been uh, government assets. In other words, uh, assets that are part of the national debt, part of the liabilities that are issued by governments. We mustn't, though, confuse these actions to support borrowing costs with fiscal policy. So the reason we are doing uh, those asset purchases is not to help the government finance itself. It's not to facilitate fiscal policy. Uh, Let's take the events of the last 12 months. It has been the case that the national debt in the UK and the US and elsewhere around the world has gone up. And the reason for that is because the economy has been weak and therefore tax receipts have been weak, but also because spending has gone up to support the economy and that those higher fiscal deficits have in turn shown up in higher levels of national debt. At the same time, the Bank of England and other central banks around the world have been buying more of that national debt. The reason we've done that is not has not been to make fiscal policy easier or the national debt easier to finance. It's just that the economy has been hit by a whopper shock, and that has required both fiscal policy and monetary policy to respond to that common nasty shock in both cases by doing more to support the economy. So although there is some link between QE, so-called, and the national debt, this isn't a question of monetary financing of the fiscal deficit. It's more a question of both fiscal and monetary responding to a common cause. 
Stat of the Week. Now it's time for our Stat of the Week. Each week we'll be bringing you a figure that's often quoted in the press and seen as a key indicator of the health of the overall economy. This week, our stat is the interest rate or base rate set by central bankers. In the UK, the rate is 0.1%. So Andy, how important is this figure and what does it mean for us and the economy? Well, ultimately, Nicola, this is the, if you like, the anchor interest rate in our economy. You know, if you're, if you're a company uh, borrowing from a bank or borrowing uh, in financial markets, or if you're a household borrowing perhaps for a house or perhaps for a car or, or, or perhaps on your, on your credit card, uh, the rate you are charged will tend to be some markup, some add-on to the, the Bank of England bank rate or, or, or base rate. So in, in a sense, this, this sets the benchmark rate in our economy, the, the benchmark borrowing rate in our economy. And therefore, when the Bank of England moves around its base rate or bank rate, that will shift that benchmark rate across all borrowers uh, in the economy. Indeed, that's the main mechanism by which we control activity and demand in the economy. So that was Stat of the Week. And this week, we were looking at the interest rate. We know that monetary policy is really a way for the Bank of England to control the money supply in the economy. But looking to the future, is cash on the way out, do you think, Andy, to be replaced by cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? Well, it has been the case over a number of uh, years, indeed a number of decades now, that the you know, the amount of cash in the economy per unit of spending has been falling. People have been finding alternative ways to pay for their stuff. We've seen some new kids uh, new payments mechanisms emerging, and that would include some of the uh, digital currencies or sometimes called crypto currencies of various types. I, I, I draw a sharp distinction here, Nicola, between uh, Bitcoin. I mean, that is a crypto asset. It's, a, it's an asset that's backed up by nothing other than cryptography, actually. Uh, there's no asset backing Bitcoin. It sort of levitates and I distinguish, distinguish that from uh, from currencies, from means of making payment. There are some of those new payments mechanisms emerging as well. For example, Facebook very publicly announced its intention to create a, a, a payments mechanism of its own. And indeed, there's a debate underway about whether central banks like the Bank of England or the European Central Bank might themselves want to issue a digital currency. And that's a debate, I think, a really big debate that's going to run and run because what we'd see and what the pandemic has given the hurry up to is people holding on average a bit less cash in their pockets and finding alternative ways of making uh, their payments. Andy Haldane, thanks for joining us for this podcast. Nicola, it's been lovely. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review Intelligence Squared Business on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. I'm Nicola Walton, and you've been listening to It's the Economy, a podcast mini-series for Intelligence Squared Business. This podcast was produced by Lovejeet Daliwal, with technical assistance from Mark Roberts and Catherine Hughes. The executive producer was Farah Jasset.